Good morning, everybody. How are you all? Good, good morning. I know you're all hungry. Well, we're going to spend some time looking at that passage and talking about this before we eat. But you are all hungry after all those food announcements. Today is our last uh, message in our series called Not Like Us. We've been looking at what theologians call the incommunicable attributes of God, the way that God is not like us and that we are different from God. We've been looking at how when we look at the characteristics and the attributes of God, the ways that He is distinct from us, that when we forget this, we end up having a very shrunken view of God and a very expanded and inflated view of ourselves. And the Bible says when that happens, when we have that distorted view of God and ourselves, that's one of the main reasons, that's one of the main sources of how God gets put to the fringes of our lives. And we lose touch with what is reality. And so when we look at the ways that God is not like us, we have a restored vision of the glory of God and a more realistic and freeing view of ourselves. So today is our last in our series, and we're looking at how God is omnipotent, or God is all-powerful. And as we read in Ephesians 3, this understanding of God as having all power, this truth that God is limitless in His power, this doctrine has the ability to completely reframe our view of God, reframe our view of our lives and how God is at work in our lives and how God can work through us. So if you're looking in your bulletin, you'll see you have an outline. If you'd like to follow along with that outline, we'll be looking at three points as we work through Ephesians chapter 3. God is all-powerful, first. Then we'll be looking at how that power is at work in us. And then lastly, how does that power work through us? So first, God is all-powerful. When it comes to the concept and the idea of power in our culture today, I think we have a little bit of a mixed reaction to that idea. On the one hand, we like power, and we are drawn to power. I'm a big sports fan, and many of you I know, I've been getting to know you are also sports fans. So what makes it onto ESPN on the highlight reel? It's not the bunt. That was such a great bunt in baseball. We've got to watch that over and over again. It's the home run, the 420-foot home run that sails over the fence. In basketball, we want to see the power dunk. We want to see the guy rise up and dunk over other people over and over again. And in football, even though it's kind of brutal and violent, we want to see that hit, that powerful hit. Even yesterday, as I was watching college football, there was this one replay, I probably saw it like 10 or 12 times, and I didn't watch that much football, but it was a play where the guy was penalized, he got a personal foul, but he picked up the uh, receiver, the cornerback picked up the receiver and basically body slammed him to the ground. And he was flagged for 15 yards, personal foul, but that was being replayed over and over and over again, because we want to see it. We want to say, show me that kind of power, we're drawn to that. And the powerful people in our culture, don't they get all the media attention? Celebrities with the fame, politicians, those with, with success, those who are wealthy, they get all the attention. We're drawn to their lives. We're interested. We want to know what's happening with them. 
So on the one hand, we're drawn to power. But on the other hand, I think we're very wary of and a little bit suspicious of power in our culture. Our trust in our politicians is probably at an all-time low. We are suspicious even of organized religion. We're more aware of systemic injustices and the plight of the powerless and how the power are so prone to use their place of privilege to oppress and to suppress. So we, I think, we carry this mixed reaction that we have about power into the idea of an all-powerful God. On the one hand, we wouldn't be drawn to, we wouldn't respect a God who doesn't have all power. But, if God is all-powerful, then we also have some questions. We have some reservations about that. For those of us who are Christians, and if you're here and you are exploring and investigating Christianity, I think we all wrestle with how an all-powerful God chooses to use His power, and when He chooses and how He chooses not to use His power in our own lives and in the suffering of the world. So in Ephesians chapter 3, the passage we just read this morning, Paul prays. He prays in light of God's power and he shows us that a proper understanding of God's power combines reverence and respect with rest and comfort. That God's power, he says, on the one hand is limitless. He's all-powerful, but he's also loving. So let's just look at those two concepts real quickly. First, God's power is limitless. God has limitless power. He has infinite ability and strength. This is also taught throughout the Bible. Jeremiah 32, 27 says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Luke 18, 27. Jesus is talking. He says, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And here, in the prayer that we just read in verse 20, if you look down at that again, Paul describes God as able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. That phrase, far more abundantly, is a very unique phrase in Paul's letters. It's like he's searching for a way to describe an infinite, to come up with this infinite adjective, to describe God in a superlative, he's searching for the words. And it's a rare compound adverb he uses. It could be translated infinitely more than. It's like the greatest superlative he could come up with. And it's fitting, as we've been looking at the ways that God is not like us, in some ways God's power, the fact that God is all-powerful, is like this grand finale to the attributes of God. You think about each of the ones that we've gone through in this series. God is unchanging. That means God's power doesn't wane or increase. God is always at full power. We talked about how God is transcendent. That God's power and His use of His power is above and beyond and distinct of the way that we use power and even think about power. God is everywhere and all-knowing. We talked about that. And that means there's no place or situation that is outside of God's power. And in his use of power, God takes into account his all-knowing insight into our lives, into how his purposes are going to take place in this world. We look to how God is eternal, that God's power is the same throughout our lives and throughout all time. After I graduated from seminary in 2004 from uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, we were getting ready to leave Orlando and move back to California. 
But that summer happened to be probably the worst summer on record for hurricane season in the state of Florida. Three hurricanes blew through Florida that year. And one of them, Hurricane Charlie, blew right over. Literally, the eye of the hurricane flew like right over our neighborhood. And so we were packing at the time. We were getting ready to move back and getting all our stuff gathered. And Hurricane Charlie blew through. And so I don't know if you've ever been in a hurricane or even if you've ever been in a really bad tropical storm. But if you haven't, then you have no idea because the, th the sound of thunder, like for my kids, they're just scared by a little bit of thunder and lightning here in Southern California. But when a hurricane blows through, it's like the entire world is ending because it goes through this process. The rain starts. The wind starts picking up. You start hearing things flying all around outside, and then the electricity shuts off. And it has to always be at night because it's, it has to freak you out even more. And you have no lights and you're just wondering, am I going to get hit by a tree? What's going to fall on our house? What's, what's going to happen outside? So when this happened in 2004, I couldn't help myself as it was flying through, passing over our little condo. I had to peek outside and look. So I opened the door right as the eye of the hurricane is passing over our condo. And look outside, I'll never forget that picture. I can see it right now. There was lightning flashing, so the sky was lit up. It was very eerie. The rain was flying sideways, and things were flying all over the place. And I just stood there for like five seconds. And then I was like, okay, that's enough. I'm freaked out. i got to close the door. And all we could do was huddle in our house in the dark and wait for it to pass. When we experience something with power of that magnitude, our whole perspective on our own power comes to life. We realize how powerless, how little power we have over our lives. And that's the picture that Paul is painting in this prayer of God. In verse 14, if you look down at how the prayer begins, we might just skim by it at first, but Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees. Traditional Hebrew prayer, most of the time, was done standing. A lot of the prayer was done in a standing posture. But Paul says, as I'm entering into prayer, as my vision of this all-powerful God is propelling me to pray for this church, it drives me to my knees, to a place of reverence, to a place of great respect for God's limitless power. So Paul says, God's power is limitless. It's beyond anything that we could ever imagine. But he goes on to say it's not only limitless, but God's power is also loving. Our experience of power at the human level, from our own personal experience or how we read about the use of power in the history books, we come up with these sayings, power corrupts. And if we have absolute power, absolute power corrupts absolutely. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he makes some sense to us. He built his whole philosophical worldview around this idea that everything's a power play. The main driving force in human history is the force of achievement, of ambition. Everything is a will to power, he said. So if love, if, if we define love as the emptying and the sacrificial giving of oneself to fill up the other, the, the giving of our own lives to fill up and give life to the other, then power, which is always self-serving, 
It doesn't seem to mix with love. How does power and love seem to go together? It's like oil and water. They don't mix. But Paul is saying here in this prayer that God not only, in his character, do power and love mix and come together. He's saying that the crescendo, the high point of God's use of his power in his eternal plan, in his eternal purpose for the entire creation, is to use his power to convince us and to fill us with his love. We're jumping right in to the middle of the letter of Ephesians. But if we place it back in its context, where it fits in the context of the letter is very significant. This prayer in chapter 3 is actually this crescendo. Paul has been building into this. And the book of Ephesians is maybe the most cosmic, the most comprehensive of Paul's letters. He starts from the beginning of time, before time even began. He says God has this eternal purpose to sum up and unite everything in his son Jesus in the gospel. And as he explains this purpose, and he says, this is how it breaks into our lives, and God raises us up from the dead. This is how God uses his power and his purpose to create this new humanity from all the diverse peoples of the earth. He's driving forward, he's explaining this plan, and then he gets to Ephesians chapter 3, to this place, and he stops and he says, I need to get to my knees, and I need to pray. These first three chapters of God's eternal plan, his eternal purpose, builds into this powerful prayer where Paul says the use of God's power that brings him the most glory and that fulfills his purpose for all things is to overcome all the obstacles that stand in the way for us being rooted, being grounded, and believing that he loves us, being full of his loving presence. So this prayer shows us that this idea of an all-powerful God, God is not a distant force of power. God is a personal. And God uses his power in order to accomplish his loving purposes in our lives. And so the result then in our lives is this combination of fear and reverence, but also fearlessness. If God is all-powerful, then what do I have to fear if he loves me? And has a loving purpose for my life. So that's the first point. God is all powerful. Second point. God's power in us. If a God of limitless and loving power. Is at work in my life. What does this look like? What difference does it make in our lives? This prayer I think can be seen as kind of a test. That clarifies to us. What is the essence of the message of Christianity? That unlocks for us the application of God's omnipotence and power into our lives and addresses some of our main questions when it comes to how does an all-powerful God use that power in his eternal purpose. So, if you're like me, sometimes you fantasize or dreamed of having the experience of finding a genie in a bottle and you have your three wishes. So you find the magical genie bottle and despite all the stories of how this goes tragically wrong all the time, we still wish, I would like to find that genie and have my three wishes. Whatever you want, all-powerful genie says, your wish is my command. Or we could say, if you knew that God would answer your prayer, what would you ask him for right now? If you knew he would answer it. Or if you had the Apostle Paul saying, I want to pray for you, and you said, this is the Apostle Paul. Who is more spiritual than him? If anybody has an inside track 
on God in prayer, then it's probably Paul. And Paul says, how can I pray for you? What is the one thing that you most need that I can pray for you in your life? Though maybe the genie illustration is a little silly. What we would wish for, what we would ask for, what we would pray for gets right down into our hearts to what we believe we need the most right now in our lives. What we are most struggling with. What we wish would be most different in our lives. What we most struggle with and say, if God has all power and He loves me, then why won't He fix this? Why won't He change this? Where is He in this part of my life? And so, just ask you to consider, what is that for you? A difficult circumstance, a strained relationship, something you're praying and wishing that God would provide, a job, your finances, maybe a spouse. Paul's prayer here is challenging. Because as he says, this is the crescendo prayer that I have as I see God's vision for all things and how it breaks into our lives and how the gospel's power changes us. He says our first and foundational need in any circumstance or in any struggle is to be rooted and grounded in the love that God has for us in His Son, Jesus. To have the strength to comprehend the experience of God's immeasurable love for me in Jesus. He uses two metaphors. He says to be rooted and grounded. One is agricultural. One is architectural. He says to have deep roots in the love of God. To have a foundation that never changes on the powerful love of God. No matter what's happening in your life. No matter what circumstance you are going through. This is your primary need. This is the prayer that you most need to ask for and to pray for yourself. This is the ultimate prayer. It's challenging because most of the time, and I'm speaking personally here too, this is not the prayer we think we need. Why? Well, Martin Luther, you may have seen the quote at the beginning of your worship folder. He said, The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. He's saying the sin underneath all our sin is to hold on to power. That Adam and Eve in their original sin in the garden said we can live apart from God. We can take matters into our own hands. We don't need to live under your authority or your power. If God were to answer all our prayers like a genie, fix all of our circumstances, grant us the power, and said, I will give you the power to fix your own problems, then what he would be doing would be reinforcing that sin underneath all our sin that separates us and that distances us from him. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus encounters a situation as he encounters a man who approaches him and says, Teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response to this situation is he says, this is the closest thing that's impossible for God to do. Luke 18, 27, we mentioned that earlier. What is impossible for man is possible with God. Some of you know the story of the rich young ruler, but there was an influential, powerful, very moral person who approached Jesus and said, what do I need to do? What one thing do I need to do? What am I missing? He had religious power. He had economic power. He had social power. 
In other words, he's someone we would, look up, we would look up to, someone we would like to be. And Jesus says there's one thing you need to do to have eternal life, to be restored to God. Give up your power. Give up everything you have and follow me. And the man went away. And it says Jesus was saddened. From God's perspective, the thing that is closest to being impossible is someone with power, especially someone who is a good religious person, to admit their spiritual powerlessness and need and to trust and follow him. That's why Peter says, well, who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it is impossible, but it is possible with the power of God. And the question is, how is that possible? And the answer is, found as Ephesians 3 directs us to the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, the crowds were actually questioning his power. They were saying over and over again, you saved other people, you healed other people, why aren't you saving yourself? I thought you were powerful. What's going on here? And they were mocking him. And the irony is that the only person in human history who had the power to save himself didn't in order to save us. It wasn't a lack of power that kept Jesus on the cross. It was the power and the strength of his love for us that kept him there. At the cross, we see God emptying himself, becoming a servant. And at the same time, at the cross, we see two things. That one, our sin is far too deep, far too strong, far too powerful for us to conquer in our own power. And God's love is far too powerful for us to let sin stand in the way of his love for us. So the cross is the ultimate display of the power of God and the love of God at the same time. So if holding on to power in our lives is the main obstacle to us growing towards maturity in Christ, to knowing God and his purposes for us, the gospel tells us the opposite is also true. The flip side is also true. Nowhere is the power of God more at work in our lives than when we come empty-handed and when we admit our powerlessness. That God's power, Paul says, is at work in us. So no, ma no matter what's happening in our lives, whatever that one thing is that you would say, God, fix this. This would be my prayer request. No matter what that one thing is, if we've grown tired, if we've grown discouraged, if we've lost hope, God's limitless and loving power for us means it's never too late. It's never too much. It's never too hard. Paul says in verse 16, as he's praying the power of God into the lives of the people in the church, he says, according to the riches of his glory. That one little phrase reminds us of the limitless nature of the resources of God. That he is powerful and he is also generous. God is not stingy. His resources are not limited. You can become deeply rooted. You can become firmly grounded. You can be filled up with the loving presence of God no matter what is happening in your life. That is the power of God in us. 
Paul's prayer shows us not only how God's power can be at work in us, but he goes on, especially in verses 20 and 21, to show us how it looks when God's power is at work through us. So look with me at those two verses. Paul really presents his vision. This is what it looks like when God is at work through a community. And I would summarize it like this. God's power is unleashed into the world through a radically humble and bold church. God's power is unleashed into the world through a radically humble and bold church. I want to start with that last word, church. Paul prays, to him be the glory in the church. This crescendo prayer, this ultimate prayer that Paul prays, takes us out of our privatized bubbles, our comfort zones that we often live in, and reminds us that God's ultimate plan is not to save just individual Christians and let us go on with our own individual lives, but to create a community that displays his glory. And through this community, to make his beauty known to the world to our neighbors, to our cities and our communities. He says this power is at work within us. And that challenges us, that God's power is activated. God's power is unleashed, not just through a me, but through an us, through the church. It's also through a radically humble church. As we've seen, Paul is very clear about the source of the power. He says it's according to the power at work within us. It's not our power, it's God's power at work. So we come powerless, we come empty-handed. And this should make us radically humble people. And God's power is displayed. God's glory is seen through a radically humble church. There's two characteristics, I would say, of a humble, a radically humble church. One is a church with paradoxical strength, and two, a church with unmistakable Safety, paradoxical strength. Not only do we need to see that God's glory through the church is not dependent on us or our resources, we also need to see that God's work and God's power shines most clearly through us in our places where we feel the most weak. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The very places of our suffering and brokenness are the very same places where we are most equipped to be the conduits and the channels of God's grace and glory to other people. In fact, if we're overly impressed with ourselves and feel like we have the right strategy as a church, we have the great vision as a church, we have all the resources to do so many great things, that can be the cause of a spiritually powerless church. Because God only displays His glory through people who know, and through a church who knows that we're just ordinary jars of clay. Again, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, God said, the one who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. A church with paradoxical strength knows we're just ordinary jars of clay. 
And in that radical, humble admission, the power of God can work through us. A radically humble church also is marked by unmistakable safety. By unmistakable, I mean obvious. I mean unambiguous. I mean you can't miss it when you see it and when you experience it. Truly humble people, truly humble communities are truly safe communities. People of any background, of any place in their spiritual journey, no matter who they are, should not have a question when they encounter a humble church, whether do I belong here? Will I be welcome here? Will it be safe for me here with my struggles and my questions? If it's nothing in us, if it's nothing about us, if it's nothing we do that has made us a Christian, it's all God's power, then pride and self-righteousness and comparing and condemning all have no place. And so we should all be who me Christians. Where we are just in awe. Who me? A Christian? I know. I don't know how it happened either. It's God's power. There's unmistakable safety when you're around a community where we all say, who me? It's nothing in me. It's the power of God. God's power works through a church, through a radically humble church. And lastly, in conclusion, through a radically bold church. It's been said of this prayer that Paul prays that no prayer has ever been framed has uttered a bolder request. There are two ways that this prayer should make us and to make our church radically bold. One is to give the permission to have an impossible vision. And two is to move us and empower us to have unexplainable love. First, impossible vision. Every church should have a vision that they say, there is no way we can accomplish this in and of ourselves. This is way beyond our resources. This is way beyond our strength. This is far beyond all we could ask and imagine of how an all-powerful God might work through us to display and to demonstrate His glory and His beauty to the place that He has called us and sent us to be as a church. And it should drive a church. It should drive a community to its knees in prayer like Paul says, We're on our knees because we know we can't do it on our own. Impossible vision. And lastly, unexplainable love. If we know that the God of limitless power, of limitless love, is for us and with us, then we should be set free to love boldly. We should love in a manner that is unexplainable apart from the presence and the power of God at work in us. If nothing is more powerful than God, if nothing can separate us from His love, and if we are on His mission and doing His will, then there is a sense that we should carry around a feeling of invincibility. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And so we should be giving and serving and blessing and pouring ourselves out for others in our lives that makes no sense apart from the gospel being true. Why would you make that sacrifice? How could you give that up? Why would you do that? Those are the questions that people would ask of a radically bold church. Sometimes as Christians we've been guilty of thinking from a top-down approach when it comes to power. A top-down approach when it comes to how God uses us in the lives of people. What it looks like to be an impactful church. A church that God's power can be used to shine forth in its community. Darian read it earlier, but the quote from John Frame, 
one of my professors, where he said, The most powerful work of God is accomplished not through warfare or politics, not through the influence of money or fame, but through the foolishness of what was preached. It's the power of the gospel at work in us, on display in our powerlessness that frees us to have a bottom-up approach where we love, where we get down on our hands and knees and serve radically bold and loving ways. One last quote from Scotty Smith. He says, The whole point of the Christian life is to bring glory to God as more and more obstacles to loving well are removed from our hearts. A radically humble and bold church. May God make us, and may God make our church such a church for His glory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this prayer that You have given to us It encourages us, but it challenges us. And I pray right now, as we are all processing and thinking through and reflecting and responding to this idea that you are an all-powerful God with limitless love and power for us, I pray where we are struggling. I pray where we are weary. I pray where we have lost hope, that you would restore hope, that you would embolden us, that you would fill us with your presence. And I pray that as you do that in each one of us personally and individually, that you would create in our church a deep and abiding trust, a bold and humble love, that we might remain rooted and grounded in your love for us in Jesus. Thank you that despite us, and in our weaknesses, and in our stumblings, and in our failings, nothing can stand in the way of your powerful love. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In us, and through the church, to spend some time just talking about our church specifically. So this is a little bit of an update, a little bit of some family and community business. So if you're new and visiting, I'm glad you're here. You can hear a little bit about what's happening, the storyline of our church, and where we find ourselves today. This is an exciting day for me, an exciting day for, I know, for a lot of us at Trinity as we're kicking off our fall ministries. We're eating tacos. That's coming very soon. Just hold on just a few minutes. Um, But it's been just a little over a month for me that I've been with all of you, and I've been spending time with you learning your stories. And I've been so profoundly encouraged to hear stories of Ephesians 3, this prayer in action. How God's been at work in so many of your lives to root you and ground you in His love. And I've also been learning about all the ministries that have been happening here at Trinity. And also, I've been blown away and encouraged that this church is a church that loves to serve each other. That this is a community where so many people are using their gifts and their talents to serve each other in uh, the community in this church. This week I was telling somebody the story again and recounting the story of how it was that we ended up here uh, in Orange County and with you all at Trinity. 
And I was reminded, number one, of how much of a weird freak I am, because I think in alliterations all the time, and everything I was saying started with the same letter. But it took me back as I was thinking about today and retelling that story to three years ago, and I wrote in this journal three years ago, and I've been tracking my thoughts, a prayer that God had been stirring in my heart. And that prayer was, Lord, give me clarity and conviction in my calling. I told you, three C's, alliteration. And it was a prayer at the time that kind of surprised me. It took me by surprise because we were very comfortable in San Diego. We were in a church that was very healthy. God was at work in that church. I loved what I was doing and the team that I was a part of. But that prayer just wouldn't go away. And I was praying, Lord, give me clarity and conviction in my calling. And over this past year, as I've been getting to know all of you, and God brought this possibility, Lord, is, are you calling us to Orange County? Are you calling us to Trinity? I was praying that prayer more fervently, and I realized I was missing one C. Courage. Because it started to become more clear. Lord, I think, I think you're in this. I think you want us to join this community, to be a part of what you're doing in this church. And we started to see some conviction develop. Like, if God is in this, then we should follow. We should listen to his call. And then I realized there has to be that other C, courage. When God makes it clear, when God calls, when there develops a conviction that this is what he wants us to do, that we have to step out in faith. And that takes courage. And so now we're here, I'm here, and God has answered that prayer. And he's been so faithful, so gracious. And as I've been praying about today, and I was preaching uh, this passage and studying this passage in Ephesians 3, I thought today would be a day to mark a time when we could pray that prayer together as a church. Lord, as you've brought this family together, and now here, me and my story and my family have become interwoven with the story that God has been writing here with Trinity. Lord, Give us a fresh and renewed sense. Give us a clear sense. Give us conviction. And give us courage to follow your calling for us, Trinity Church. Make it clear. And when you do, give us the boldness. Give us the courage to follow. So as we pray this prayer together, I wanted to encourage and maybe just challenge and invite you as, as Paul goes on in the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bible, I'm not going to preach another sermon, but if you want to follow along, I wanted to point out what he says a little bit later after this prayer. He says, God's power is at work in the church through prayer, but in Ephesians chapter 4, he goes on to describe in a little bit more detail how this power comes to life in a community, in a body. And in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, he says, He gave to the church apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. He says this maturity and fullness that he's praying for happens in the church through servant leadership and through the work of the whole community doing ministry together. So I wanted to say just a few short updates, and then I'll be done about those two things here at Trinity. Servant leadership that is healthy and unified and focused on equipping is vital for the church. And many of you know that Trinity has a leadership team. 
And I've been getting to know this leadership team and working with them and seeing how faithful they've been, how loving they've been, how their heart has been to equip this church uh, for ministry in their time in serving as a leadership team. And so I, as the pastor, and Darian Lockett, who was up here earlier as the elder, were working with this leadership team. And I just wanted to say I'm so thankful for their service, for Chi, for Eddie, for Ryan, who is rolling off now after many years of faithful service, and for James. You may be aware also that in addition to the leadership team, who's still faithfully serving and I'm working with them, we also have elders in training. And so we're going to keep you up to date on this process. As I step into that process, as we finish it out, we'll be giving you updates and we're praying through the clarity of how when the Lord calls and brings men into the office of elder, how that will all work together in the clarity and the structure of leadership at Trinity. But I just wanted to say I'm so thankful for the willing servants and so impressed to see the the serving heart, the shepherd's heart that has been at work here in Trinity. So the vision that we have as a church will be to continue to develop leaders, to train, to equip, and to have healthy and united leadership as a church. So that's an update on leadership. Second, ministry in community. Spiritual maturity is the result of the whole church becoming ministers and servants to one another. And so the ministries we have here at Trinity are designed to equip and to provide an environment for Ephesians 4, 12-13 to happen in our lives. So, I don't know if you saw it, but there's a brochure in your pews. It's probably right in front of you where the Bibles are and the hymnals there. If you want to just pull that out, this is an overview of our fall ministries. And it's not just information that we're giving you to know what's happening. But I also wanted to invite you during this time to just reflect. This is an invitation. If there are places where you're not connected and involved, if there's places where you feel like God is calling you to be further equipped, I want to invite you to reflect, to pray, to plug in, and to participate. So now we're going to move to our time of offering. And during this time, I just ask Brian to play a little bit longer so we could just spend some time responding to the message, reflecting on how God might be calling us to be further equipped, to be further connected here at Trinity, and just to reflect and pray through those things. And if you feel like, I see a spot where I didn't want to plug in right now, I'm ready to respond, you can use that little slip that we've provided in the brochure. You can drop that into the offering basket as it passes by. So let's take some time now just to open up our hearts to pray, to respond, and to reflect. Let's do that now.